Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. My name is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps a fundraiser perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, meaningful relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong givers. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insights into the hearts, minds, and connections of their donors. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.cubac.com to schedule a free demo. Podcast listeners, the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow is finally back on the schedule. We have several dates confirmed. Since 2014, our team has been providing high-quality one-day roadshows in partnership with nonprofit leaders who want to showcase their space and provide thought-provoking and highly interactive fundraising training in their nonprofit community. Our roadshows have been described by our guest as hands-down the best professional development experience that they have ever been a part of. This experience has been described as challenging assumptions with conversation-inspiring content and new ways of thinking. If you would like to register for one of the upcoming stops on the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, just visit the link in the show notes. Hi, Andrew. I am delighted to have you here with me today on the Fundraising Talent Podcast. This is the first episode that I will be recording in the 2023 calendar year. It's the, I think it's the morning of the 4th. We're probably going to broadcast this I don't know, four to six weeks out from now, you and I will decide that here in a little while. But, um, and you've been on here a couple of times. I think it's probably been 12 or 18 months since we last talked to you. Uh, I think the last time, Andrew, you were on here was probably right in the thick of the pandemic. But, um, and a lot of people know who you are. Anybody who's listening probably knows who Andrew Olson is. But for those who don't, how about I just ask you to introduce yourself? Hey, Jason. Yeah, thanks. Uh, appreciate you having me back on. Happy New Year! Um, and yeah, I'm I'm Andrew Olson. I've, I've been you know in the industry now for about 25 years. Uh, I I am currently the uh, senior vice president of fundraising solutions at Dickerson Baker, which is a uh, fundraising consulting firm that really lives in in a couple different spaces that we'll talk about in a minute. But um, you know, in, in addition to that, I've, I've written a couple of books. I host the Rainmaker Fundraising Podcast. And I'm always excited to have an opportunity to chat with you and to uh, to talk to uh, the the folks that listen to your podcast, man. Yeah, yeah. So, Andrew, you're the first person that I've had the chance to ask this question of. And you and I didn't talk about this, but I always like to keep my guest on their toes. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to figure out how I would sum up 2022. Um Maybe in a couple of words, a single sentence. Is there anything? Uh, 2022 was kind of interesting. It wasn't quite, certainly wasn't 2020 with the pandemic and the, you know, the myriad of events that happened during the summer of 2020. But how would you describe 2022? Yeah, that's a, that's a interesting question. I think for a lot of, <laughs> uh, for a lot of organizations, I would, I would categorize it as a return to average. And, but at the yeah, same time, okay. I, I, I think the other thing that I heard quite a lot was sort of this happy accident that, um, you know, people had expected a couple of years after the pandemic that the, from a fundraising perspective, that the sort of the bottom would fall out of the market. Right. Um, and when you think about yeah. what was going on with the economy, what was going on in Ukraine, I mean, all, all these things that right. should have lent themselves to a much more significant decline in, in revenues for organizations, um, didn't really materialize, uh, other than in a couple of key categories where really nothing was going to 
solve their, their challenges. Um, but so I, I think for some, there's sort of this happy accident of like, well, it wasn't anywhere near as bad as we expected it to be. So we'll take that as a win. Yeah, I like that. A happy accident or a, uh, yeah, there, there's probably another, uh, um, all right, I'm going to sit on, I don't know if I'm going to own that, but I'm going to at least, uh, I'm going to at least sit on it. Andrew, we always ask our guests to come on here with a big idea or bold opinion. You've had some changes in your career, um, in your, uh, where you hail from. Um, and I've been paying attention to your career path for at least the, well, at least since the uh, first book came out myself on, on my end, we've developed a pretty meaningful friendship since then. Um, so, uh, tell me what's on your mind today. Yeah, man. So, uh, you know, this whole idea of like a, a bold perspective or, 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 you know, stance, I, I think lends itself well to what we're doing. So I, um, for those who don't know, I, you know, I've been in the direct response fundraising industry for most of my career, right? Which means yeah. direct mail, digital marketing, um, direct response television, you know, th- those kind of fundraising vehicles. I uh, spent a few years in a nonprofit running development, but most of my time has been on the direct response side. And uh, the, the folks at Dickerson Baker really principally have, have operated in three areas. Capital campaign design and and, and consulting, uh, major gift coaching and consulting, and executive search, and and so you know really kind of a completely different area of of philanthropy as a practice. But Derek Baker, who's the the founder and CEO, is a, a great friend of mine. <clears throat> Excuse me, we've we worked together for a decade, kind of sharing clients, right? So often you yeah. call me and say, you know, we're working on this capital campaign. This organization needs annual fund help. Can we bring you in? And and I would do the same thing. I'd be working on someone's annual fund program and, and say, hey, Derek, these, these guys need a capital campaign or they need a new CEO or, or, you know, they've got three development officers and nobody knows how to raise money. Can you come in and, and coach and develop a program for them on the major gift side of the house? And so we, you know, we collaborated back and forth for a long time. And, and over that decade, we kept kind of coming to this inflection point together where we would say these two sides of the house have to work better together. And, and yeah. they are currently designed to all almost always be in conflict, right? Because yeah. the, um, the goals of an annual fund direct response program and a major gift uh, effort are, are pretty significantly different. Right. But, but he and yeah. I, uh, kind of always at, at the end of the day, looked at each other and said, there's got to be a better way to do this. Right. And so uh, about a year ago, we started talking about what it would look like to approach the, the, um, the annual fund, the direct response arena from a completely different perspective and just kind of rethink how to prioritize the way that we work in this industry um, with the goal of treating more donors like you actually care about them as human beings. Yeah. Advancing relationship over transaction and, yeah. and finding ways to create a more meaningful interaction with donors kind of at every touch point, um, which causes, you know, when you, when you think about how, like, let's just use direct mail as an example. Um, the, the way that, that a direct mail program has typically worked is you just run a series of solicitations month over month throughout a year because you have to ask, uh, you know, a high volume of times to get enough people to say yes to make the financial metrics work, right? And beyond that, um, one of those dirty little secrets that that direct marketing agencies don't really like to talk about is the only way that their return on investment actually works well is if you load in mid-level and major and legacy gift donors into the mail programs, because without those donors giving, you know, a transactional gift every now and again, there's no way the return on investment actually works when you, when you do the math. Um, so, so, you know, what, what Derek and I have, have been thinking about and, and re- really the reason I came to Dickerson Baker is to launch a completely new direct response fundraising uh, solution into the marketplace that prioritizes the relationship first. And, and essentially, you know, the, the, the space we're staking out is that we do believe that we can do this better. And we, we believe that by thinking about, you know, what's the end goal, the end goal being, I want to build a meaningful relationship that leads to transformational giving. 
and then acting accordingly and changing the way that we use direct marketing to actually build an advanced relationship versus just focusing on treating donors like ATMs. You know, I was talking to, uh, I was talking to Jennifer Harris the other day and your name came up in our discussion and, uh, and I told her I was going to have you here on the podcast and get an update on, uh, on, th- on what things were doing. And, and one of the expressions I made, one of the things I said to, to Jennifer is I said, yeah, I think Andrew's sort of reading the writing on the wall. He strikes me as a guy who's sort of always been willing to, as long as I've known you, been willing to sort of see the direction of where things were going um, or at least sort of, you know, wrestling with bigger, broader, longer term sort of questions. Is that part of the reason you're sort of uh, having, you know, asking some of the questions you are forming the partnerships that you are, is that you're sort of seeing the writing on the wall and um, maybe the life expectancy of direct response and direct mail is sort of, are we on the downward, are we on the downward curve of a, of an inner innovation curve? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. So, you know, if, if you ask that question in, in any of the various sort of public conference settings in the nonprofit sector, you'll have, you know, yeah. every direct marketer in the, in the room stand up and say, oh, people have been saying for decades that direct mail is dying. It's not dying. It's, you know, blah, blah, blah. I, I don't think um, direct mail as a medium is going away. I mean, we, we see it, you know, actually thriving in certain places. But here's the data point that I think is really concerning to me. And it, it is driving a lot of how we're thinking about this. Um, I don't know if you saw some of the, the Pew data that came out recently about um, aggregate household income. Did, did you happen to see that article? No, forgive me. No, no. Okay. Well, I'll send it to you uh, because it's really insightful. So they looked at aggregate household income by, um, by cate- category is not the right word, but essentially they looked at sure. lower income, middle income, and higher income households. And from yeah, 1970 yeah. to 2020 is their snapshot. So it's a it's a 50 year snapshot, right? And and not surprising, lower income households essentially remain flat from 70 to 2020. And they 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 started in 1970 having 10 percent of aggregate household income, and in 2020 they were at 8 percent. So a slight decline, but but really pretty much on point. Upper income households went from something like 29 percent. Of, of aggregate income to 50%, right? So uh, a steep increase in income for upper income earners, right? Uh, which based on what we know about the market, we know about you know growth and technology, all those things, doesn't surprise me that we saw that upper income households saw that kind of increase. The thing that's really scary because it's where most organizations donors live, especially those organizations that have really built their fundraising operation on direct response uh, is middle class and middle income earners uh, saw a steep decrease in aggregate household income over that 50 years, going from having 62% of income to 42%. So, you know, as I look at that and and it's, you know, we're seeing it in the response data in direct marketing programs as well. Um, But, but what that tells me is that organizations that, that first and foremost, focus on transactional giving and keeping the machine running and keeping, you know, direct mail going out every month or twice a month, whatever it might be. And, and they live sort of on that 25, 50, hundred dollar transaction. That well is drying up a lot faster than anybody wants to admit. And if, if organizations and, and fundraisers are not thinking right now about how do we shift and how do we adapt to that financial reality. This is not about generosity. This is not about people not agreeing with your mission. This is simply about the fact that those who have the money don't necessarily give the way old direct response programs are built. And so if we're not adapting to that and we're not um, pretty quickly moving to a, a structure where we are prioritizing relationship fundraising and engaging with donors of high net worth and high capacity, um, we're going to be in for a world of hurt in the next decade. And, and so very much in part, um, the reason why we're thinking about this is because we, we believe fully that um, you know, the, the, the donor demographic is changing. And there will always be some donors who give small dollar gifts 
who, you know, kind of, you know, they, they are, they are trained and, and sort of cultivated on that transactional mentality. But by and large, if organizations want to make trans- transformational impact and accomplish their mission, they have to be thinking differently about relationship building and about who the donor is that's going to actually get them from where they are today to the kind of impact they want to make in the future. Okay, so maybe maybe there's a um, – because one of the things I've sort of wrestled with over the years, and you read the first book and you get you get a lot of the concepts that I'm sort of putting out there and our team at Responsive is putting out there – but, but you know, you'll recall one of the distinctions that I made in that first book was the difference between the initial and the subsequent gift. And we all know that in the fundraising space, when it comes to direct response or or any of what, what we commonly refer to as lane one, you know, we can acquire that initial gift, but everything sort of falls apart when it comes to how do we get to that subsequent gift. And it sounds like what you and Derek are talking about which is intriguing for a direct response guy like yourself to sort of be saying that you're having this conversation and knowing you as I do, are we finally just sort of seeing that shoot? I mean, all do direct response by any definition, by any means, we're always going to have to secure the donor. We're always going to have to secure that initial gift, but are we actually at a place where we're all going to start to wake up and say, we've spent the last hundred years sort of fine tuning how we acquire the donor. And now we're going to have to get our act together when it comes to how do we retain them? You know, how do we get that subsequent gift? I mean, 80% of these donors drop off after you put mail in their mailbox the first time. Um, is, is that essentially as simple as it gets is we've just got to figure out that, uh, and, and once that, and you know this, you've heard me say this before, I've heard you say similar things, the nature of that relationship changes once that first gift has sort of been exchanged. There's a, there's something that's different about, you know, giving the first time versus giving the second time. Um, it's, it's why we call it, the, you know, the messy middle. It's that place where you're navigating the nature of the relationship. You follow me? I do. Yeah. So, and, and I agree with you, like the, the, that first gift is the hardest decision you'll ever get somebody to make, right? Because they're, you're, you're going from a place yep. of not knowing you, not really caring about you to being, you know, make, making an initial investment, right? So that's the, that's sort of the hardest decision you'll ever get a, a donor to make. Um, but I, I do think that there's a, there's a really significant shift that needs to happen. And I'm not seeing it. I'm seeing it in some organizations and with, with sort of a specific cohort of, of fundraisers, but there are still a lot of people who, who have not made the shift to really being able to not just give, you know, pay lip service to the idea that retention is important, but shift their fundraising strategy. And here's a case in point. I, I was working with an organization recently uh, that was touting that they had doubled their, doubled the size of their donor file in the last couple of years. Right. So, you know, that's a significant undertaking to, to be able to say that. And it's not like they went from a thousand to two thousand names or a hundred to two hundred names. It's tens of thousands. And but at the same right, time, right. their their donor retention rate was in the teens. And even more concerning, when you look at donors who give uh, gifts of five hundred dollars or more in a, a single gift, that was at like three and a half percent retention. So, so essentially what they're doing is, is they're just running a, a constant sort of churn program. And, and the, the difficulty in that is that, um, they're, they're proud of the fact that they're growing, but when you look at the back end, that's not growth. It, it's just activity. Right. And, and so, you know, the, I, the sort of the, the perspective that I had on this and, and the conversation around it is it's not about. You know, success isn't how much money flows through your organization. It's how much you capture, right? Because you can only spend the net. And, and if you, if you aren't holding on to those donors, you're not even paying off the cost to acquire them by the time you have to go out and replace them. And so, um, I, I do think a lot of people are starting to talk about, you know, how do we shift and focus more on retention? How do we focus on uh, creating a sustaining relationship with donors, whether it's a, a monthly sustaining gift or some sort of you know longer term pledge program, and how do we then also build relationship with donors? But one of the unfortunate things that I'm seeing, and I'm sure you see it in your work, is a lot of people like to talk about that. Very few people are willing to do the hard things that are required to change your model 
and and to actually say, you know what, we're going to shift our investment. We're going to invest a third less in new donor acquisition this year so that we can fund another position to to build relationship with our donors or or we're going to take investment from, you know, this strategy over here in direct response and we're going to put it into either people or or process and systems to allow us to do better at retaining more donors. There's there's a lot of talk, but I'm not seeing with the exception of a, a few organizations, I'm not seeing a lot of organizations really adopt the changes necessary to do what we're talking about here. Andrew, is it a threat? Is it is it a threshold question? And 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 what I mean by that is, you know, I've worked with organizations where you could sort of look at their data, you could look at their, you know, direct response program, you could look at where the average gift was in in what we call these three lanes, and you could sort of see this threshold that um, that direct response would only sort of push the average donor at that organization to a particular level. And what I'm seeing when I look at the sort of the general giving trends and donor behavior, what I'm seeing is this tendency to sort of push down that average gift size that we can ever expect of direct response, which is to say that, you know, are we going to get to the place with things like donor advised funds where any gift over, and I said this to my business partner recently, said this to Michael, any gift over $500 you know, five, 10 years out may absolutely 99% of the time come through a, do- a drone, a donor advised fund, which isn't going to be favorable to a, to a, a, a direct response program. Um, and if that's the case, then are we always going to rely on something like direct mail, something like direct response, but the average gift size ne- is, you know, the average gift is never going to sort of budge, you know, much higher than, than where we perhaps see it now. Yeah, you know, I, I I don't know that I fully agree with that hypothesis. I, I think in a lot of cases it's true. Um, I have seen and, and have run programs though where where we were able to really significantly move the needle, even within direct response on on average gift, um, and and really you know beyond average gift, looking at at sort of annual value per donor. Yeah, yeah, and but it requires a different approach right it requires that you you intentionally treat donors differently um here here's an example uh, i would never say hey you've got donors who are high capacity donors who are giving you you know say a four figure gift every year in the mail don't arbitrarily take them out of your mail program but you better have a different treatment for them and you better have a more compelling reason to engage them and ask them to support you and as your internal capacity uh, uh, allows, then you start to engage them relationally. And, and once you've built that relationship and, and they, they've moved beyond being a transactional donor, then you can start to, to peel away the, the direct response tactics uh, in favor of, of actually you know, building a relationship and advancing the cause that way. Um, but but that does require a different approach and a different way of thinking, right? If if you're not able to do that, then I do think you're stuck in this environment where you're never going to get beyond what's what's possible really in a direct mail program. And I think the one of the big examples of that. So you and I have both worked with rescue missions, right? Um, I think yeah. part of the challenge is, is how you bring a donor into the organization in your donor acquisition and and what you tell them is important about the relationship, right? So I, I and, and this was. This was largely, um, you know, created by direct response agencies. In fact, I mean, I, I cut my teeth at, at a firm called Russ Reed that doesn't exist anymore. And Russ really built this model uh, for for rescue ministries, and it's this idea of like, you know, a dollar ninety seven or two dollars and forty seven cents provides a meal, right? When when you bring a donor into an organization on an offer like that, you've essentially said to them, "This is a low value engagement for you." Right. And so you can kind of always count on on the concept that that donor is going to going to anchor whatever giving they they make to your organization within that context. Uh, And and one of the things that rescue missions are are finding, uh, at least those that are a little bit more um, progressive in their fundraising, they're they're coming to me and saying, how do we get off of this meal ask? Right. How how do we how do we talk to these donors? 
about the fact that it actually takes us $2,500 or 3,500 or 10,000, whatever it might be to move someone from the point of, you know, chronic homelessness to um, addiction recovery, to mental health care, to, um, you know, uh, long-term housing and, and actually help them become a stable member of society again, right? And, and but if we if all we've ever done is talk to these donors about two dollars and forty seven cents provides a meal, two dollars and forty seven cents provides a meal, it's a really big leap to to say, hey, you know, we we know that you gave you know two hundred forty seven dollars and you helped a bunch of people have a meal. Now let's talk about how how you give you know twelve thousand dollars to help us take one person from chronic homelessness to sustainability. Right. That's a massive leap if you don't have a relationship. And if all you've ever done is have a transactional uh, sort of hamster wheel model. Right. So, yeah, I, I think the organizations that are successful are those that are starting to rethink the cadence of their uh, direct response fundraising program and the content and starting to weave in other touch points that maybe aren't purely transactional fundraising, but are really designed to help the donor progress in their understanding of the organization and of what it means to be a donor and to support the cause and what it takes to actually achieve mission. If you're not doing that, you're always going to be stuck in sort of the, you know, low dollar, $25 transaction kind of model. So when you and I were having this sort of the, when you and I met a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about having this conversation, uh, you know, I, I started part of the, or I brought up in our conversation, the idea, you know, we talk about this idea that if, you know, four out of five of our donors are not renewing to the, they're, they're not making that subsequent gift. And, and I'm curious when you say sort of moving from like a lot of us are talking about moving from a, a very transactional to a more genuine relationship sort of way of being, we're talking about that, that, that 20% of our donors who come through new acquisition and somehow or another sort of raise their hand somehow and signal to us, Hey, engage me in a more meaningful way. And you can count on more sustainable support, increased support. You know, the average gift might go up, et cetera, et cetera. How do we identify that donor? I mean that if 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 there's a if there's a magic formula I would looking only at what current fundraising is doing I'd be saying find me those 20% of the donors who actually can give who actually demonstrate that they'll they'll give this the, the second time and then like like master them I mean how do we understand them Yeah that's a great question and it, you know that often starts even before an organization conducts acquisition or it should start. Right. So the the idea that, Hey, we just acquired a hundred donors. How do I find the 20 that are going to stick with me? I think that's the wrong question. Yeah. I think the question should be, how do I identify the right don't the right people in advance of sending out an acquisition campaign and make sure that my audience is more loaded with those people than with the sort of, five, 10, $20 once and, and I'm gone kind of, kind of givers. And, but it, it requires a couple of things. One, it requires that you organizationally get comfortable with the idea that you're not building the largest toy box possible to fill with donors. You know, and, yeah. and it's, it's not about collecting names at that point. Right. So a lot of organizations talk about, Oh, well, you know, we we're, we're building the largest file possible. Well, okay, but if you're not retaining any of them or, or if you're only getting low-dollar gifts, you're really just building a, a really expensive mousetrap, right? You're not building value. Um, so, you know, I think first and foremost, you have to be comfortable with the idea that you are going to bring in fewer donors. And you have to have a, a business model that allows you, when you bring in those fewer donors, to move much more quickly and much more intentionally from initial transaction to relationship. Yeah, right. If you have that, then then it's a data issue, right? So it's understanding who the people are that are more likely to stick around long-term and who are more likely to make bigger gifts to you. So one of the things that most organizations don't do in their donor acquisition, um, because it's hard to do, is they they don't assess their performance based on long-term value or long-term net income. 
They say, well, what donor lists can I rent that get me the highest response rate? And that's a really bad metric. It, 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 at a time, it was the only metric you had, right? Average gift and response rate. And so absent any other data points, I understand why organizations use those as sort of the benchmark for acquisition. But those don't matter, again, if, if people, people from those audiences and those lists don't stick around. Whereas if you look and you say, okay, all of these lists or sources of, of donor acquisition names, they have a really high response rate, but their long-term value is the lowest of, of any audience we have. Um, I, I would want to target the people who stick around longer and who have a higher long-term value much more so than I, I want a high upfront response rate. I, I would rather we have a really low upfront response rate, but we get really good donors out. Here, here's a, a good example. Um, when I w- worked in, in pediatric healthcare, I used to mail uh, a, a list that was called the Mayo Clinic Book Buyer File. So this is people who purchased books off Mayo Clinic's website, sure. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was the lowest responding audience in the entire mix. And I would often have our vice president say to me like, why in the world are you mailing this? Like, this is expensive. You have to pay a premium to get these names. And I would say, yeah, but everybody that comes from that file starts with a, a first gift of $250 or more. And, and what, what's important about that is that there's really a threshold. And it's, it, it goes somewhere between $25 and $50. But what, what we see is that in that range, if your first gift is anywhere near $50, you are much more likely to stick around for a longer term than someone who gives below that level. So if I can, if I can acquire a donor who's giving me 250 bucks, even if I get fewer of them, they're going to stick around longer. And they're also more likely to convert to a mid-level gift or a sustaining gift. And eventually more likely to become a major donor than someone who starts the relationship with me at $10 or $15. Um, So I, I think, you know, if an organization is thinking in that mentality, um, then they can make this pivot much more successfully. But it does require a different perspective and a different way of working and thinking about things like new donor acquisition and also thinking about things like, you know, how, how do I engage these constituents the first time they give? And, and part of that is, again, it's, it's um, an unfortunate reality of, of sort of poor management. And, and some of it is financial, some of it is structural, but here's an example. I, I talk to organizations all the time who say to me, oh, I don't send a thank you uh, acknowledgement receipt for any gift under $50 or any gift under $100. <clears throat> so what you're telling me there is you've got a bunch of people who make a first gift to you and, and you essentially say, screw off. I'm not going to say thank you. I'm going to send you another solicitation and tell you I want more money, but I'm never going to tell you that I appreciate you or I value you unless you give at a certain level. And I, I understand the financial decision behind that of saying, if this is a low dollar donor, I'm just not going to spend money on them. But at the same time, if you want any hope of converting those people to longer term giving, you have to start with the relationship in mind and build everything from that perspective versus saying, uh, I, I'm going to treat you well once you become a valuable donor to saying, I'm going to treat you well and hope that once you, once I do that, you become a valuable donor. Does that make sense? Yeah, it it does. The, the the threshold I'm talking about, Andrew, is the is that is perhaps that um, the the threshold I'm talking about is that level of giving that we can anticipate direct response or any what I would call arms length sort of strategy can get the donor to. I tend to see in most of the clients that I've worked with, it tends to get to about twenty five hundred dollars. Like even the largest of donors, and I've heard others in our space, and you know some of these folks that we that you and I sort of some colleagues that we talk to. I've heard other people suggest that some organizations can get this threshold to like a like ten thousand bucks. But once you're at so so, let's say it's anywhere between twenty five hundred and ten thousand dollars. Once you get to that place, and if 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 you're and I'm and I'm and I'm looping back to your comments about your your synchronization with uh with Derek is there a place where at $2500 the average say rescue mission if 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 a if a fundraiser does not pick up the phone and 
invite you to coffee. Doesn't even necessarily mean you're going to go to coffee. Doesn't even necessarily mean it's going to go anywhere. Doesn't even necessarily it's not a message left on a voicemail. Is there a threshold where we're starting to sort of realize if there's not at least an invitation of a more meaningful relationship, the donor's just not going to budge beyond that. Does that make sense? And, and it's not it, in any way does. to suggest that that name, it, it's not to suggest that that name's necessarily going to come out of direct response either. That was what I dealt with with one client. It was like, well, if Sally started calling these donors, we've got to remove, no, leave the names where you you can mail to them anytime you want to. I'm just saying that that part of the donor's expectation is at a minimum that we sort of close the loop on that gift exchange process. Um, and, and sometimes it's as simple as just getting a voicemail that says, Hey, if you want to get together for coffee, let's do that. Yeah. So, so I think you're spot on there. And I think that, you know, the sort of that threshold varies. Um, and, and what, what I see is there are some, and it's always kind of in that middle gift category, right? So there are some donors who, give a, say a thousand dollar gift, right? And for that donor, that thousand dollars is a stretch. And yeah, so yeah, if sure. you're not meaningfully engaging that donor, um, and, and like you said, picking up the phone, making a phone call, even if it's leaving a message and, and, and acknowledging their importance and their value, um, then, then they're not going to give any more than that, right? They're not going to stretch any further than that. Yeah. Then that's not going to budge. Right. Yeah, yeah. You've also got this category of of sort of mid level donors, where kind of that thousand dollars is a jumping off point, right? And and they're going to make a key decision. They're either going to give you substantially more if you invest in the relationship with them, or they're probably going to walk away and start giving elsewhere. And, and so you know we we tend to see it right in that sort of thousand to twenty five hundred dollar range. And you know, I mean, I've run some some direct mail campaigns where you know we use elevated strategies and engagement tactics and and we raise significantly bigger gifts right i i think that you know roy jones and i ran a campaign together for a rescue mission where we we secured a six hundred thousand dollar gift in the mail that's one thing sure right right Um, right right and and that donor had a previous personal relationship with the organization absent something like that i think if you're not identifying sort of that mid-level category and starting to build relationship, even as simple as things like handwritten thank you notes, voicemails, you know, if, even if you can't get to a personal, you know, face-to-face interaction with someone, we often see that just the invitation to relationship like that tends to, to let donors know, okay, they value me and they see the importance of my giving. Um, so if you're not doing that, I, I do think that that's where the cliff starts to fall off for organizations. Yeah. Yeah. So at, at, at responsive, one of the things that one of our signature sort of services is the idea of building out simple rules and simple rules is the idea that we don't have to become a master at, at direct response like Andrew is. And we don't have to constantly sort of be, you know, overanalyzing sort of each individual donor. But one of the things like I'll be on, I'll, I'll be on site with a client next week. And one of the things I'll say to them is, is, in between the first gift and the second gift, anything that exceeds, say, $500 is absolutely got to receive a telephone call with a message left or an invitation for coffee, right? It's just a simple rule that says, and, and we and we figure that out with the client. We say, okay, you know, because in some cases, the client can't quite commit to the, that volume certain times a year. But we say, look, figure out what that rule is. A lot of times it's $500. That seems like a large number. In some cases, it seems like a small number, but most of the time I can get clients to agree to it. But it's the idea. And and again, we're not pulling names out of the, this doesn't mean that you turn around and remove all these names from the direct mail program. But what it means is, is you're adding this additional layer that very simply sort of conceptualizes what that expectation of that donor might be. And I tend to think that 90 plus percent of those donors, say at that $500 level, just getting that telephone call saying, hey, you want to go to coffee, even if it's in a voicemail, is sort of what they're looking for. It is. Does that make sense? uh, Do do you know Tom Hooper uh, at Nimble Connect? I don't. I don't. You ever meet him? No. Okay. Forgive me. So Tom uh, runs an organization. 
Tell Tom we'll have What's him that? on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. So, I said so tell Tom, Tom we'll have him on the podcast. You should. He runs a, a really cool organization. So basically, um, he built a company a couple of years ago, right before the pandemic, I think. And and their entire premise is that um, organizations do stewardship poorly. And so he's he's sort of created a, a contract business unit that makes thank you and stewardship calls and and does handwritten letters for organizations that don't have the capacity to do it internally. And and you know one of the things that he discovered in in, in testing and, and analyzing the data around this is when you when you make that call, that meaningful thank you call that reports back on the gift, that may invite someone to coffee, might invite someone to meet with a, a founder or or a, a leader in the organization, uh, for ministry organizations, might invite you know the donor to share a prayer request that that the ministry um, will will you know pray over things like that. They're seeing that the, the donors that get that contact have something like a forty percent higher retention rate than those that don't. And, and I think that's a, a proof point to just what you're talking about that, you know, these donors are saying, wait a minute, I, I made for me what's what I consider a significant initial investment or a significant even, you know, ongoing investment in your organization. And if if you're not at least treating me in a way that feels commensurate with that investment, we're going to have a problem. See, and Andrew, that's OK. You and I have talked about this stuff. We've talked about this for years. But there's the difference between being an extraordinary fundraiser in the sense of what you know and understand. And there's there's the there's the other sense, and this is some of the argument I was starting to trying to make in that first book. It's it's one thing to sort of know and understand what Andrew knows, and it's another thing to sort of know and understand the the wisdom of what we just said. And 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 I'm saying to the to the client. I need my on the ground full time fundraiser to know that and be less concerned about what Andrew's delivering on. You know what I'm saying? It's 100%. it's it's like where I draw the line between lane one and lane two. I I feel like I feel like maybe we're sort of getting to the place where we can begin to say, let's stop hiring hordes of fundraisers who are extraordinarily fascinated with how to secure the first gift. And let's start hiring full-time fundraisers who actually want to pick up the phone after Andrew has helped you secure that first gift and help ins- and help Andrew ensure that you get to the second one. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. And I, and that's, that's a very, I think, astute way to put it. And it's, it's, it's exactly the kind of approach that Derek and I are taking with this you know, new initiative um, and, and why it makes sense for us to do this in this business, because you know, they, the, the Dickerson Baker team has spent 30 years helping organizations uh, train and equip their people to, to raise dollars through personal relationship. Right. And so what we're saying yeah. is if you're not putting these two sides of the house together in an intentional way, um, you, you're really putting your long-term viability at risk. Because if you don't have fundraisers in the seat who are trained, equipped and motivated to take that donor from the point of you made a first gift or even you made a second or third gift and no one's talked to you um, yeah. to, to now let's go be intentional about this and let's, you know, at least invite you into relationship. Uh, you've got problems. Now, many donors will say, I don't want to talk to you. Right. I, I, I've done my piece. I, I, you know, I'm happy to send a check and not have to, to visit with you. Uh, but for the donors who want something more, if you don't have, People on staff who can do that work and who thrive in that environment, um, you're never going to get off the hamster wheel. Right, right. They're just going to constantly. I, I had this debate with a with a, a, a an old timer, I guess you could say, somebody who's been in this space a lot longer than you and I have recently, and and, and it was the. It was the idea. We've got a lot of fundraisers out there who are basically trying to become masters at what what someone like yourself can come in and do for you know several dozen shops, um, and none of them, are, you know, and, and at the same time, a large number of them are not the type of fundraisers will pick up the phone after that five hundred dollar gift comes through and say, "Hey, thank you, Mrs. Smith." It, it, it seems to me like the most opportune time when I think back on my own times in the field when I was working for shops as a fundraiser myself, 
one of the quick, one of the things I figured out, the best time to pick, you know, start a meaningful relationship was on that thank you call. It's your job, Andrew, in large part to get the organization to that thank you call. And it's the fundraiser on the payroll's job to pick up that phone. Yeah. So, I mean, you and I both have teenagers in our house, right? Now, yeah, I don't know about do. you, yes. but too, but too mine, many, too many of them. <laughs> yeah, m- mine spends most of the day like this. And those who can't see me, I've got my phone in front of my face, right? And and I think this is for me a big concern about even our our youngest uh, fundraisers in the sector, right? They are they are so um, uh, trained and and conditioned to use technology. And to to replace uh, human contact with technology, right? So when I when I talk to people and I hear things like, "Oh, I reached out, I sent a text," or "I reached out, I sent an email," and I often will say, "Like, well, why didn't you pick up the phone?" Right? And, and there's just such yeah. a natural inclination because of that conditioning that that younger generations have gone through with with you know personal technology to default to. A message on social media, a text message, an email, versus picking up the phone or or sitting side by side, you know, uh, at at the lunch table with someone and having a conversation. I think, you know, I, I I don't think that it's necessarily that they want to be masters of you know digital fundraising as much as there's a major lack of comfort, uh, right. just personally, yes. with you know building face to face relationship because they've been so um, ingrained in this idea that you do everything across a screen instead. And I think that's going to be significantly detrimental for our industry uh, if we don't figure out how to equip and, and train younger generations to actually do this work well. Yeah. See, Andrew, we'll wrap up on this thought, but I'm, I'm interested to hear your thought. I, I, I thought to grab the book as I, as I was just having this thought, you know, when I, when I saw that you were partnering up with Derek, one of the things I thought about, I said, I thought, okay, so here we got a direct response guy. We've got a guy who does exactly, you know, we have a shop that I knew I know does executive search. And I also know that, that Derek and his team do, do a lot of major gift work and, and what I don't, and there's a, like I said, there's a book on the behind me here that, that talks about the idea that essentially what you guys are doing, Andrew, is you're changing the definition of that fundraiser who's on the ground, boots on the ground. You're, you're messing with job descriptions. You're messing with job descriptions. And by, by you guys sort of partnering up, you're adding just more and more clarity of what is expected of that fundraiser on the ground that is partnering with a shop like yours. Because a shop that knows direct response, a shop that gets uh, 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 major gifts, and a shop that's actually perhaps in some cases actually doing helping the client do the executive search is going to look for a candidate for their clients that aligns with this type of thinking. Am I right? I, I think you are, you know, and, and I, I think you know, I talked about this when we were having our prep call a few weeks ago. What this means is that there are going to be a lot of organizations and a lot of fundraisers who say, ooh, I'm uncomfortable with that kind of yep. structure and approach, right? Because yep. it upsets the yep. outcome. It, it takes what was maybe, you know, a, a really sort of easy to coast in role and says, no, you, you actually have to be intentional about this and you have to want to build relationship and and, and make, you know, significant uh, inroads in in personal relationship development um that that i think a lot of uh a lot of fundraisers have been able to avoid by focusing on things like you know how to schedule the next event and um you know uh, what social media campaigns we should be doing around giving tuesday or our you know state giving day and how do we how do we fine-tune direct mail or my newsletter versus how do i take these hundred donors who have the capacity to really change the the narrative around my mission and build relationships such that they give five, six, seven figure, eight figure gifts and and make a, a significant impact. Yeah, I mean that's exactly what I saw. So when I saw the exactly, we'll we'll wrap it up there. When when I saw you announce that you were joining, you know, the team there, I thought 
this is just more and more clarity of consultancies sort of figuring things out, figuring out what the right sort of mix is. Um, and, uh, and I think ultimately we're talking about as I, as, as I'm usually talking about here on the podcast, this sort of this redefining and clarifying what the fundraiser's job is. Um, Andrew, we, we lose our listeners at 50 minutes in, so we've got a few more minutes. I want to make sure that we give the, uh, I want to make sure that we give the opportunity to you to, to remind everyone where they can find you. Um, tell us again who you are, how they can find you. And, uh, and we'll certainly put some information about, uh, about you and the, and the team there, uh, in the show notes. Yeah. Thanks, Jason. So um, it's Andrew Olson. You can reach me probably easiest at LinkedIn. I spend a good part of the day there. Um, and, and folks can download my my book, 101 Biggest Mistakes Nonprofits Make and How to Avoid Them uh, from my LinkedIn profile if they want. Um, Dickerson Baker, uh, DickersonBaker.com. Uh, you can find us there. And uh, I'd, I'd love to talk to anybody who's interested in uh, fundraising a little differently. Andrew, it's certainly been a pleasure and you're always welcome back. It's always great to see you, Jason. Thanks again for having me. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.